Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the latest developments in the mediation process between Governor Dayton and the legislature. A new study ranks Minnesota near the top for good jobs for workers without bachelor's degrees. And a new film based on the books of late Minnesota author Vince Flynn has its pre-premiere in Roseville. But first... Bill Matthews was about the most genuine person I've ever met in my entire life. He was a man of his word, and his word was gold. Bill, we love you beyond words. You will always be our hero. They, you know, they risk their lives every day. And and I guess we should appreciate it. Officer Bill Matthews was killed in the line of duty on Friday, September 8th. He was picking up debris on Highway 12 when he was struck by a motorist. The woman behind the wheel has been charged with criminal vehicular homicide. Officials say 54-year-old Beth Freeman was driving without a license, was under the influence of drugs, and admitted to talking on her phone and receiving text messages before striking Matthews. Bill Matthews began his career as a licensed peace officer in 1998 with the Zombrota Police Department. In October 2008, he began his career with the Wyzetta Police Department, where he was a firearms instructor, a field training officer, and a reserve coordinator. Bill's brother-in-law, Craig Badolfson, spoke at the funeral. This is why I said it's a great day, because I choose to celebrate a man that has taught me so much. I choose to celebrate a man that changed our family for the better. I choose to celebrate a son and a wife who will forever carry Bill's legacy forward. I choose to celebrate a life that was cut way too short, but impacted more people in that short time than most of us will in a lifetime. Bill Matthews leaves behind a wife and seven-year-old son. He was 47 years old. And now switching gears, Governor Mark Dayton and Republican leaders have been court-ordered to resolve their differences over business tax breaks and other items. Dayton agreed to the measures at the end of the regular session, but then Republicans put a so-called poison pill in the tax cut bill to ensure Dayton would sign it. He did sign it, but he also line-item vetoed operating funds for the legislature, saying the only way he would restore them is if Republicans rescinded several of the just-enacted tax breaks, allow undocumented immigrants to obtain driver's licenses in Minnesota, and repeal changes to the state's teacher licensing law. Republicans sued Dayton, and this brought us to where we are, didn't it, MNN's Bill Werner? Yes, Scott, it has been a long political and now legal litany. A district court judge ruled in Republicans' favor, saying Dayton overstepped his authority under the state constitution. But when Dayton appealed, the Minnesota Supreme Court overturned that ruling, upholding his vetoes, but also in that multifaceted decision ordering the two sides into mediation. The governor apparently feels he's in a strong position. The court said that my action was constitutional, which the legislature disputed. That's why the legislature took the matter to court. I, I never proposed to defund the legislature. I proposed to 
force the legislature to do exactly what the Supreme Court ordered, which is come back and negotiate. Republicans respond, date and defund the legislature to try to force them to make concessions on tax cuts, which he'd already agreed to in end-of-session budget negotiations. Republican leaders acknowledge the court upheld the governor's line-item veto authority. They say they don't dispute that, but they also point out the high court emphasized that constitutional powers may not be used, quote, to accomplish an unconstitutional result which they argue it's Dayton trying to shut down the legislature to gain bargaining leverage. To navigate this legal jungle, let's bring in Hamlin University professor David Schultz. Very complicated ruling, or it's a very sloppy opinion. I'm not sure which it is. But at the end <laughs> of the day, it, the court is, is, is punting. It's sen- sending it back for the two parties, the governor and the legislature, to mediate out some issues here. Essentially, the court doesn't want to decide the case and is hoping that in the next you know, several days, a couple of months, legislature and the governor work this out. That's, that's what I think is going on here, is that the, the court doesn't want to decide it and wants them to work it out. But there are some interesting ways of also looking at this opinion, that at the beginning of the opinion, it, set, it upholds the governor's line-item veto. And, of course, that means Dayton and the Democrats are going to say it's a victory for them. But as soon as it says the light-item veto is constitutional, in the very next paragraph, the court then says, however, that doesn't end the inquiry, and then goes into the questions about temporary funding and the ordering of mediation that sort of gives a victory to the governor and takes the victory away from him at the same time. The question that, that, that comes to mind immediately is, if they say the governor's vetoes are constitutional, and they order them into mediation, and presumably they will comply with that because it's an order of the Minnesota Supreme Court. But ultimately, doesn't the, isn't the governor insured of a victory if he holds out long enough? Not necessarily. No. Because what if the legislature, the Republicans say, fine, we're just not going to meet next year. We're going to show up on the first day of the session, adjourn sine die, and we're not going to come back for the rest of the year. I mean, therefore, we're not going to consider a bonding bill. We're not going to consider any of the governor's final requests for appropriations. Oh, and by the way, all those things that he wanted us to change when he lied item veto, when he sent a memo to us, we're just going to ignore them also. But then they say that Minnesotans are being deprived of their right of representation. Um, and Minnesotans are going to say, well, we don't have a legislature. Or are they? Or, or can they get away with doing that? I mean, it's a very interesting theory, that you, very interesting strategy that you outline on their part. But can they get away with it? And that's an interesting question. Will they be hurt by their base? I don't think so. I think they wouldn't be hurt by their base by that. Would they be hurt in terms of running a statewide gubernatorial election? Perhaps yes, and I think they would have to spin that a different way. But I would certainly say that this doesn't completely give the governor a full victory, doesn't um, completely rule against the legislature. Um, it certainly, I think, you know, augments or alters the bargaining situation a little bit. But, but at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's, again, it's still not clear that this is a victory for either side. The other thing that I think is interesting here is the fact that during oral arguments, the court asked several questions regarding whether or not um, if the governor's veto was sustained, would that mean that a future governor, a malicious one, could line-item veto out judicial funding? 
this opinion doesn't address that issue, and if you take that as this opinion as a ruling on the merits, it upholds the possibility that a future governor could say, I don't like a particular Supreme Court opinion and, and not fund them. The strategy that you outlined, a possible strategy on Republicans' part to just say, well, if there's no funding for the legislature, sorry, Governor, we're just going to not meet in, in 2018, a bonding year, and, and coincidentally, and, and, not, uh, and not uncoincidentally, an election year, too. Uh, but realistically, do you, do you think that they'll use that strategy, or do you think that, that there will be negotiations that are uh, uh, in, in any way serious at this point? And that's, and that's really what I think is a more interesting question now is how do the Republicans respond to the decision that on the face of it looks like it's a victory for the governor? Um, and are there ways that they can still use this decision as, as a way of, of, of helping their bargaining situation? That's Hamlin University's David Schultz. Another possibility, because the legislature has some reserve funds that could sustain it for a while, If there's no quick resolution, the high court could simply order that the two sides continue negotiating. That way, the justices would avoid doing the same thing that Dayton and Republicans accuse each other of, namely meddling with the constitutional powers of another branch of government. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. According to a new Georgetown University report, Minnesota ranked among the top states for a share of good jobs for workers without bachelor's degrees. Tasha Radel has more. Nearly half, 45% of good Minnesota jobs, now this is according to the study's definition, were held by workers without a four-year degree, compared to 50% in Wyoming, the top state, and 33% in Kansas, the bottom state. Joining me now to dive into the study's findings is Mitch Perlstein, founder of Minnesota-based Center of the American Experiment. Mitch, can you put this into some context for us? American Experiment has been pursuing since earlier this year a new project, a multi-year project called Great Jobs Without a Four-Year Degree. And in many ways, uh, it grew out of uh, conversations we were having uh, about uh, how young people are faring or not faring well in the job market. And I would tell a little story. I'd say, uh, imagine uh, a young person graduating high school, uh, really not uh, encouraged or enthusiastic about going to college or seeking a four-year degree, but he's pressured to do it by parents and peers and teachers and others. So he enrolls, and it doesn't work out well, and he drops out, and now he is underemployed or unemployed, and he's in debt, when in fact there's a much better way for building a career, getting started in life for people who really, for whatever the reason may be, are not enthusiastic about going and seeking a four-year degree. There are so many terrific certificate programs, community college programs, which train people for jobs. Uh, that pay well, that do not need a a BA or a BS. There is training in the military, for example. So what we are trying to do is expand some perspectives, making it clear that uh, a four-year degree is not the only way to succeed in this life. 
and in so doing, making it more likely that businesses will thrive in Minnesota and across the country because they need a lot of people who are very highly trained in technical areas, and they don't have these people. And, you know, I I have to ask, so what would be defined as a good job? In this particular study, if I recall correctly, and it was Kathy Kirsten who did the work on this one, it was a a starting salary of $35,000 for uh, a young person and somewhat higher, I think, in the 40s for uh, an older person. Solid middle-class jobs that have uh, opportunities for growth. And was there any sector that we were seeing more of these jobs uh, available in? One of the interesting things, people keep on talking about the death of American manufacturing when that simply is not the case, and that uh, Georgetown study showed how there are actually more manufacturing jobs in Minnesota than uh, than in other places on a percentage basis. And, you know, I also have to ask you, we were talking a little bit about education and and training. Do you feel that we're going to start seeing more of these programs developed in, you know, the non-four-year schools? The answer is yes. Um, And there are various reasons. The economy needs these people. Uh, The jobs pay well. A lot of folks with... uh, Undergraduate degrees and graduate degrees are not doing uh, all that uh, all that great. And another aspect, and the caveat I throw in right away, is that I will never ever dissuade anybody from seeking a four-year degree if that is their dream. But it's not necessarily the dream of as many people as might have been the case when I was coming out of high school back in the 1960s. And now you add the fact the tuition rates and fees are so remarkably high, and perhaps remarkably is not the best word I could use. Uh, a lot of kids are resisting that. A lot of parents are questioning now the value of a four-year degree. Uh, they're not necessarily thrilled about dipping into their retirement savings so their uh, son or daughter can get a degree that doesn't necessarily lead to a good job. Thanks again to my guest, Mitch Perlstein, founder of Minnesota-based Center of the American Experiment. You can find more information on this report at AmericanExperiment.org. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Back to Minnesota Matters, I'm Scott Peterson. Minnesota author Vince Flynn's series of political thrillers topped bestseller lists for more than a decade, and his fans have been excitedly following the ups and downs of his iconic character, Mitch Rapp, ever since. Tragically, Vince died from prostate cancer in 2013 at the age of 47. Vince Flynn had long hoped to move Rapp and his action-packed stories from the page to the big screen, and that's finally happening with the release this week of the film American Assassin. It stars Dylan O'Brien as a young Mitch Rapp. The film recently had a special premiere in the Twin Cities, and the theater was packed with Vince Flynn's family and friends and many other VIPs. Flynn's wife Lisa tried to put it all in perspective. I'm really excited. I'm so happy that it's finally happened. And... Um, But I think everything works out the way it's supposed to, and the timing is actually perfect, even though it's been years in the making. This was the time. And unfortunately, you know, Vince isn't here to see it, although I do feel he 
is with us and approving and I know he'd be super happy about the outcome of this movie. I assume this must be a pretty emotional evening for you. It is a little bit, yeah. But it's also, uh, you know, it's, I, I'm really happy and I'm really excited. It is a celebration and this is, to me, the best way to celebrate Vince. Um, all his friends and family are here tonight and it's, it's just, it's really meaningful. Do you feel that they got it right? I do. <laughs> that's going to be important. I do. I, I, and you know, that's a kind of a nerve-wracking uh, journey, that part of it, but when I was able to visit the set a couple times last winter and meet the cast, watch them working, I was completely at peace and at ease knowing that everyone was chosen perfectly, they all did their homework, they captured the essence of their characters. I just couldn't be happier. When you're sitting in the theater watching the movie, is it is it hard for you to concentrate on the movie? I mean, is your mind going in a million different places? You know, I do need to see it again. I've only seen it once, and you're right, because I've gone back and looked at different uh, previews and, and trailers and thought, wait, was that in the... I don't remember that part. So I know I, I probably was getting lost in thought every so often. If you don't mind, can you just talk about the significance of having this sort of event here in Minnesota and why that's important to you? Well, this this would have been really important to Vince. Um, the, uh, to be able to invite his family and his friends to this kind of an event and celebration of the kickoff of the movie uh, release it would have meant the world to him. Former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty and his wife Mary are friends of the Flins and say being at the premiere without Vince is bittersweet. We miss him and we loved him and uh, we just are here to honor him as a person and of course as a great talent as well. Tell me a little bit about Vince and uh, what made him a special person. Vince was an incredible patriot. He loved our country. He loved the men and women who served our country. He got to know a lot of people who served in the military and the CIA special operations. I had a chance to introduce him to President Bush on a number of occasions. Even President Bush was interested in how Vince could get the information to write these books and I was there when they were, he was questioning Vince about trying to uncover uh, some of his sources <laughs> and so, but besides his being a great talent and so successful, I just really respected him as a person uh, and he was a patriot. The film's star, Dylan O'Brien, says he knows he's filling some pretty big shoes playing Mitch Rapp. First of all, he spans 15 books, you know, 16 and um, um, and there's, you know, there's so much love and passion for this character, and uh, I mean, to the point where people have such such a specific uh, vision of him too, you know. And um, so the way, I mean, I go about it is, uh, I just, I, I can't let myself feel any pressure about that, you know, because um, um, then I wouldn't have been able to give, uh, uh, I wouldn't have been free in my performance, and I wouldn't have, you know, I don't know, I would have, I would have felt the pressure the whole time and been distracted. So, um, so I try to just put that stuff out of my head, and um, I know myself that I was very. Uh, connected to the role and that I um, I felt like I could portray this guy you know and uh, and uh, and I wanted to you know I was passionate about it and um, you know so that's what I stuck with and that's what I tried to just keep focused on how do you go from feeling that connection to actually putting it on the screen was there a key to finding that character 
Um, yeah, well, you know, it's uh, uh, for me, it was a really honest and truthful path to it, uh, uh, to be honest, you know. Um, and uh, it was the most time I was ever able to um, spend with a character in my mind before uh, before filming and um, and with the training, too, then uh, eight weeks beforehand. And so I really got to physically and emotionally uh, get invested in this guy. And um, it was also, you know, I was going through a tough time in my own right, too, at the time. And it was all this sort of really odd coincidental timely thing for me where I really felt like uh, I was gonna be I understood this this character and by the time we got shooting I mean I was itching by that point you know and I've never felt so uh, um, so so relieved to finally be getting this uh, getting whatever character I was portraying on on its feet uh, first day of filming before um, it was uh, it was an amazing man one last question how does it feel to be in Minnesota with Vince's family for this event tonight? this is the most special thing of the tour um, uh, truly you know it, this is um, um, I'm honored to play the character you know and, and and I'm more honored to to be doing this though and bringing it here I mean this is the most important thing um, to be able to share it with uh, with Vince's family and his friends and I'm sure people who worked with him you know and um, and just come to his hometown and uh, um, celebrate you know uh, his accomplishment and this success and 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 then finally you know his movie uh, his book being able to um, uh, come to the big screen finally I mean it's it's just uh, it's gonna be a really I don't know emotionally charged celebration though you know it's it just means the world it's amazing with 16 Mitch Rapp books to choose from there's a strong possibility for sequels at a theater near you Minnesota Matters will return after this Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The Minnesota Twins are on a remarkable run, potentially heading toward a postseason berth. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with Twins radio voice Corey Provis for Minnesota Matters. Scott, coming off of a 103 loss season in 2016, it didn't seem likely the Twins would be in playoff position with just more than two weeks left in the 2017 season. Corey Provis admits he didn't see it coming. This may be odd. All right, here we go. Test, test, test. Well, Corey, year six for you. How much fun are you having? We're into September. You're in the postseason chase. In fact, if the season ended now, you'd be in the postseason. You know, I'd love to say, Mike, that I, that I saw this coming, but uh, that would be a flat-out lie. I go back to 2015, and, and I think they exceeded expectations, and there was nothing numerically or even statistically that I could point to as to say, all right, this is sustainable, because it really wasn't. Then 16 was a disaster. Uh, the 9 start just kind of ended any hopes for a relevant season uh, in early April last year. And I felt maybe that this team with the same personnel back for 17 could be somewhere in the middle, and they took off. Uh, you know, they, they woke up August 2nd with a run differential of minus 75. Then they go on that run in August. They win 20 games. Everybody's hitting. They wake up September 2nd, and the run differential is now plus one. To, to wipe off 70 runs, uh, of, of opposing offense in a month is awfully tough to do. So I'm having a great time. I hope the fans are enjoying it because I know the players are. It's funny that they're doing some of this without Miguel Sano, who most consider their best power hitter. But you look at what 
Eddie Rosario's doing. Joe Maurer's having a resurgence here in the last 60 days. I mean, uh, you know, and there's all kinds of people. Byron Buxton all of a sudden is sitting at 14 home runs. I mean, there's a, there's some fun guys in this lineup to watch. The guy who has surprised me out of anyone has been Jorge Polanco. I mean, he was somebody that last season was pretty good, and he was given the reins at short again this summer and got off to a dreadful, dreadful start. And we were talking about this with the Padres just in town because the last time the Twins and Padres played, Polanco was like one for his last 37. He wasn't an everyday player. And then it was not long after that when the team got back home for that four-game series with the Rangers then the four-game home-and-home with Milwaukee when Polanco just went on a tear offensively. And that hasn't slowed down now into September. So I'm not shocked with the year that Rosario's had, that that Dozier's had. I knew Buxton was and, and will be a good player. Uh, but I never saw this kind of uh, offense coming from Jorge Polanco because of where he was just not many months, but weeks ago, how bad his numbers were. He has completely turned things around. And why the Twins have played better on the road, their starting pitching ERA is better on the road than it has been at home. And, you know, Irvin Santana, Jose Barrios, their, their, their home and road splits are interesting. Irvin's been better on the road than he's been at home, but Jose Barrios has been amazing at home and not great on the road. It's one of those fluke things that you find with baseball with all the games and all the stats that you have available to you. But but it starts with the pitching that more times than not, there were some clunkers the first half of the season. That's why, heck, Jim Jimenez has pitched six times. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a playoff team that where your backup catcher has pitched six times. I mean, that, that shouldn't happen. Uh, but they had their fair share of clunkers early. They haven't had many since. And they, they, that, that will happen. You're going to have a few here and there when you get blown out. But the Twins have also been on the other side of things, blowing out the Royals 17-0, the Padres 16-0. The starting pitching for the most part, it's still a staff, Mike, that doesn't strike out many opposing hitters. But, but just try to keep your team in the game. If, if you can go that six-inning mark, you give up three runs or less, you've kept your team in the game, and that's all the offense could ask for. Enjoy it. Thanks, Mike. That's Corey Provis and Mike Grimm. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. station.